0: The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org.
1: Well, thank you for coming to this sitting. It's February 23rd, a Tuesday morning. And my name is Jim Bronson, and I have the opportunity to speak, and then we'll have a discussion. We have some microphones that we'll pass around Not necessarily that we need the amplification, but people will be listening to the recording, and so it's helpful to use the microphones. So I'd like to focus on an interesting topic that's kind of captured me recently, and the title is Buddhism in Surprising Places. So not long ago I started noticing that in our culture and in our society here in the United States that there's a lot of dharma that's creeping in and actually becoming very prominent. So one example that is very present for us is that the Dalai Lama met with our president last week and it was kind of a low-key meeting so as not to offend too many people, but the Dalai Lama and President Obama, interesting rhyme there, sat down together and had a chat. And wouldn't we love to hear how they went? (laughs) They are two very interesting people. (laughs) would be fascinating. I hope that over time that there is more that comes out but you can bet that they appreciate each other a lot, that they both see in each other really remarkable people that have taken a strong stand in the world and uh, a stand that's not necessarily the most popular, but a stand that has at its heart ethics and putting into practice living ethically living, as the translations of our dharma suttas say, living a virtuous life. So I think that that's an interesting example of how modern Western Buddhism, the Buddhism that is practiced by people that weren't born Buddhists, but nevertheless, acquired an interest and a commitment to the learning of it and the practice of it in their lives have brought it into the culture. So the Dalai Lama and President Obama—it's one example. But another example that I would uh, mention is that there's lots of art available. Uh, Anybody here been to the Asian Art Museum in San Francisco? Isn't that a wonderful facility? And they have these fascinating exhibits that are beautifully done. And recently they've had (laughs) lots of Buddhist art, Tibetan art, um, opportunities to see how artists over the years have brought their Attention to the Dharma into expression, and it's been interesting to me that uh, a lot of it I don't relate to. Uh, if you look at the original sayings and teachings that we hold most most dear in our particular sangha here, the Theravadin scriptures, the writings that probably stem from 500 years BCE, the time of the man that we call the Buddha, Siddhartha Gotama. So we're not clear because of the amount of time between exactly what he said and how uh, that went into the world but what we know is that the oral tradition at that time was very strong and that people were very skilled at passing what was said along from generation to generation. And that somewhere between 200 years BCE and 100 years AD that what was passed on in the oral tradition was written down and then that writing was passed from monk to monk, mostly in Sri Lanka until the late 1800s when British civil servants encountered the philosophy and translated these ancient teachings. So these are the teachings that we call Theravadan Buddhism, the Way of the Elders, and it is at the heart of what we hold dear and what we practice and think of. So if you look into these teachings, you will see it's said very clearly, attributed to the man we call the Buddha, that one should not hold to views, particularly religious views, and that holding strongly clinging to religious views presents a suffering it presents uh, a lack of freedom and a lack of clarity so it's very interesting in our tradition that the the person the historic figure that we think of as being the origin of much of the teaching actually said do not hold to what I teach you, rather hear what I teach you, try it, apply it in your life, and if it works, continue. If it leads to more freedom for you and for others, then continue. If it doesn't, don't. And so that's a freedom, I think, that is very special and very precious, and it's unique, We think of Buddhism as being one of the world religions. And in fact, if you look at books on world religions, it's usually said to be the third or fourth largest of the world religions. But it's very different. It's very different than the other major world religions. In terms of teachings, I will say a few things about why it is different. What makes it surprising? Why is it surprising to have these teachings in our culture? And in particular to have it called a world religion. It's more of an approach to how we live our lives and how we can be in the world. And it's so, it's what you may say more like a psychology or like Uh, a description of how to practice in an effective way that leads to happiness and to freedom. So just now we're paying attention to the Olympics. Uh, I've enjoyed very much watching these fantastic people with Tremendous concentration. I mean, you just think the amount of concentration that they put into their skill at skating or doing flips off a jump or skiing down a hill at 90 miles an hour. It's just fascinating to see what the human being is capable of. The Olympics, according to the history books, started in 776 before the Common Era. And so just for a moment, I want to help us place some key events. So it's thought that the formation of city-states happened somewhere in the neighborhood of 1200 to 1000 BCE. So that was at a, a time when People were able to have enough abundance of productivity on their farms and so forth that it made sense to have cities, and then cities became more organized. So it wasn't long after that, several hundred years after that, that the Olympics started, 776 BCE. And that was about 270 years before the birth of the person we call the Buddha. So you think about 270 years, that's quite a long time. What happened in our lives, in our culture, 250 years ago? So 250 years ago would be roughly, what, 17, 1850 or something like that. No, 1750. 1750. So 1750 is a long time ago in terms of kind of what our values are. Back in 1750, people practiced slavery very openly. Uh, churches had slave auctions. Uh, Sunday morning, you'd go to pray. Sunday afternoon, you'd have the slave auction. And uh, slaves were housed on church estates so that they'd be convenient right there ready when it was time to have the slave auction. And it wasn't thought of as being something to not be proud of. It was part of society. It was how everybody kind of aspired to be making a living, was to have slaves working for you. So 250 years before the time of the Buddha, people had thought about having the Olympics pulling together people, uh, special people, however, to have athletic contests. And the special people that were allowed to have the athletic contests were people that were citizens of the empire, the Greek empire, and spoke Greek and were male. So we didn't have Title IX sports back then. I'm going to pass around a map. I was looking uh, for a map that showed where language was common at the time of the, the living Buddha, roughly 500 BCE, where a language was spoken that was very similar to the language that he spoke. And so... Uh, there's been lots of studies, linguistic studies, showing that that common language covered quite a large area. It's called Indo-European language. There were dialects, and there were local, certainly local dialects, but uh, there was a fairly large area within which you could travel and roughly understand other people and communicate and conceivably compete in their athletic contests and so forth. So I'm going to pass this map around, and the red, sort of reddish salmon-colored area shows the area at the time of 500 BCE that Indo-European languages were spoken. And I think you would be quite surprised. It shows a large area that takes in northern India all the way over to the eastern side, and Greece and all the areas in between Afghanistan and Pakistan and goes actually into the Mediterranean on the west. Not uh, much farther than Italy, but roughly the east-west boundaries were Italy and eastern India, or uh, what we now call Bangladesh. And so that's a large area, and conceivably people could have been competing in the Olympics from that area, area because they would have spoken an Indo-European language that would have qualified. So this fascinates me because it says that the traditions of Greek philosophy and the traditions of Buddhist Dharma teaching probably had lots of exchanges. And so what we think of as being Theravadan Buddhism and being particularly associated with one man who had several hundred or a thousand or two thousand monks that followed him, that really were that was influenced very broadly. And so teachings that we think of as being ancient Greek teachings and the teachings that we think of as being Dharma teachings have much in common. So again, another surprising location, another surprising place to find Buddhist thought is in ancient Greek teachings. And I brought along some examples. So the teachings that are particularly Buddhist-sounding are from a philosopher known as Epicurus. And I have some thoughts here from what he taught that was recorded in documents called the Vatican Sayings. And the Vatican as you probably know, has a library that has historic documents, very, very ancient documents. And so these are documents that preserve the teachings of this philosopher Epicurus. And here are some that I thought might be interesting because they have a resonance with Dharma teachings. So he says, Death is nothing to us, for that which has been born will die. That which has been dissolved into its elements and experience leaves no sensation, and that which has no sensation is nothing to us. So this is interesting because so much of world religion, particularly at that time, but also at this time, has a lot to say about death. Now, where do we go after death? What causes death? Uh, what's life like after death? And so on. So Epicurus, in about 350 BCE, says, Death is nothing to us, for that which is born will die. Interesting. Similar to Dharma teachings. So another Uh, this from the Vatican sayings, he says, it is impossible to live a pleasant life without living wisely and honorably and justly with ethics and virtue. So it is impossible to live a pleasant life without living wisely, honorably, justly. And it is impossible to live wisely and honorably and justly without living pleasantly. So, a Greek philosopher uh, cautioning us that if we want a full, fulfilling, happy life, then we must attend to an ethical life. We must attend to virtuous practice in our life. So just one more. He says, The just man is most free from disturbance, while the unjust man is full of the utmost disturbance. So that sounds quite similar to Dharma teachings. In particular, thinking about the four noble truths, that the wise person who practices the middle way, who practices the eightfold path, finds happiness and freedom in this life not in an afterlife or otherwise. And the unwise person, the person who doesn't practice wisely, then is tormented or has a lack of freedom. So this was really breakthrough thinking if we look at uh, traditions that now are the biggest religions in the world, Christianity, uh, Islam, Hindu uh, religion, that these are more traditional religions. They they are more prescriptive. They more say that there are um, figures that can be appealed to for happiness and for benefits in this life. And if we, we appeal to these figures in a certain way, we'll do that. So Epicurus and the teachings of the Buddha, the Dharma, tell us a different story. The different story is that our happiness and our freedom in this life is really up to us. It's not up to some person or figure, it's not up to rituals, it's not up to any other source, any outside source. It's just up to us in how we practice our lives, how skillfully And both Epicurus and in the tradition of the Theravadan Dharma, there are some insights about how we can practice our lives, what leads to skillful living, and what is the virtue. So it fascinates me that ancient Greek thought, if we lived at that time and went to the Olympics in, say, 300 BCE the Olympics were flourishing and they were uh, Well-known people talked about the Olympics looked forward to going to the Olympics they actually lasted until about 350 AD So there's about a thousand years in there when the Olympics were Something that people thought about and put effort into And so, say we went to the Olympics in 300 BCE. Wouldn't it be interesting to tune in on the conversations? The sports people at the time, my guess is, would be talking about how they skillfully developed their expertise. And I'm wondering how much of the dharma that we know today from our Theravadan dharma, how much of that would be present, how much they would talk about. One of the surprising places that dharma has come into our culture is a fairly well-documented story about how the Chicago Bulls, under their coach Phil Jackson, practiced meditation. And in particular, the kind of Vipassana meditation that we follow here. The teachings of 2,500 years ago in a basketball setting, in the locker room, helping people get settled, get things out of their mind, so that they can just focus on being skillful, applying their skills. So another example of where this teaching is sort of coming into our life, and in writing an announcement, I'm doing a series of four talks out at the coastside sangha that meets at the Montara Lighthouse, and tomorrow night we have the third of the four talks, and the talks are all on about surprising places that we find. Buddhist teachings the dharma and in mentioning about it or putting the blurb together that talked about that I mentioned uh, Time magazine having Buddhism on the color on the cover Time magazine had a cover story on Buddhism in America this was in 1997 and at the time, they suggested that there was probably 100,000 people in the United States that would say that they were practicing Buddhists. And uh, many of those were probably transplants from Southeast Asia, where Buddhism is a very strong presence. And now the latest statistics are something like 350,000 people who think of themselves as being Buddhist. So something's happening here that is resonating. It's, it's um, a time where our culture is becoming more and more rich in the Dharma. <clears throat> and we've got a ways to go. I think that one of the very important Dharma practices is called protecting our senses because our culture has a lot going on that is harsh and hard to handle. In particular, the Dharma teachings of being harmless, of holding yourself as being harmless and holding your life as being so precious as not to give it up in anger or in violence, in causing harm. So that teaching is a hard one to practice in our society. Our culture is famously harsh and violent. And for better or for worse, we validate violence, we uh, hold heroic those people who propagate violence, And for those of us who are meditators, it's a challenge. I've often thought that uh, the statement, there are no atheists in foxholes, could be changed around to, there aren't meditators in foxholes either. Because if you're sitting in a foxhole and you're meditating, you're not going to be very effective at jumping out of that foxhole with your gun and going after somebody. It's the beauty, I think, of meditative practice is that it's sort of self-corrective. It it kind of moves us in a direction as we sit and as we meditate, even without us consciously uh, wanting to go there. It moves us in a direction where we're less prone to violence and we're less prone to aggressiveness. And hopefully we're not less prone to being active in the world. So that's been one of the criticisms of vipassana practice and dharma and meditative practice, is that it's passive. But I think not so. There are many, many examples of people like the Dalai Lama that are not passive at all, that they vigorously put forth Principles that take lots of energy and lots of vitality and, and bravery to be able to be in the world and to stand firmly and to declare yourself committed to things like harmlessness. Well, the Dalai Lama is a good example <clears throat> of the variety and the diversity that Buddhism brings. So when we say that there's dharma in our culture, we have to be very clear and say that there is lots of kinds of dharma. The Dalai Lama in particular comes from a tradition that has many deities, and he's thought of as being the reincarnation of a line of lamas that began in about the 1500s that then were thought of as being the reincarnation or the continuation of a lineage that goes all the way back to the Buddha. <clears throat> so that's a particular way of looking at that lineage and that tradition. Those of us that are more committed to the Theravadin way of the elders branch of Buddhist Dharma teachings would say that it's not particularly productive or helpful or skillful to spend our time and our energy thinking about deities or lineages or who's reincarnated or whether reincarnation really is a factor or not or what happens before death or after death. So the the Theravadan teachings are what you would say agnostic about a lot that normal or other major religions speak of. So, in the Theravadin Dharma, it is said that there are those things that are skillful to speak of and those things that aren't. And those things that are skillful to speak of lead to more freedom and more happiness for yourself and others. Those that are not particularly skillful to speak of are those things that either are be way beyond our control or way beyond our ability to know. Like what happens after death and what happens before death and what the cosmos is all about and who started the cosmos and when. So the Theravadan teachings don't take a particular position. They're not for any of what normal traditions, normal religions say and they're not particularly against any. But the teaching again is this very simple teaching. Try and experiment. Put it into practice. Put a particular behavior or practice into the world, in your life. If it works and leads to freedom, adopt it. If it doesn't, let it go. So in this way, we develop our ability to be alert, and present in our lives and to live lives of harmlessness of being true to a certain ethical pattern that preserves the opportunities of ourselves and others In the teaching of the Theravadin tradition one of the key Uh, passages is where the Buddha first, the man we call the Buddha, puts out into the world a teaching. And as the story goes, after his process of attaining a particular vision and appreciation for how life works, so-called enlightenment under the Bodhi tree, he wandered for a while, and in his wanderings, didn't really choose to be a teacher. His thought was, oh, people won't be interested, or they won't pay attention. Who's really interested in the teachings that had led to his particular enlightenment? <clears throat> and then, after a while of avoiding being a teacher, he does teach five people in a deer park and has a conversation with them. And at the end of this period he talks about what it was that led him to this particular awareness. And so here's the phrase that comes out of the sutta, the recorded sayings that came from that time. He says, Alone in awe-inspiring groves, Naked, no fire to sit beside, The sage yet pursues his quest. Alone in awe-inspiring groves, Naked, no fire to sit beside, The sage yet pursues his quest. So I'm going to stop my thoughts with that. That this is a a tradition that doesn't require particular vestments. It doesn't require particular styles of architecture or rituals or belief in anything that's unseen, faith in 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 doctrine, this is a tradition that can be practiced alone, naked, no fire to sit beside. So wherever we are, whatever our life is presenting us, as we live skillfully without all the trappings, with as some teachers say, with no credentials, Dharma life is a life with no credentials, but we practice it because in ourselves we know that it leads to a settleness, a happiness, and a freedom. So, our opportunity to find Dharma and Buddhism in surprising places. I've talked about a few. What I'd like to do is take a few minutes now to open it up and have thoughts from you all about where you have found Dharma in surprising places. Maybe in your life, maybe in the culture, you're interacting on the job, in your family. But where have you found the teachings of the Dharma being present maybe in surprising places. So we'll talk about that as a group just for a few minutes, and then I'd like to close by doing some chanting. And so I have some sheets that I'll pass around while we're having our discussion that have the three refuges chant, and we'll do that chant just as a finish. And I'll give you a little heads up about why we're going to do that. But before we do that, let's just have a little chat. Where have you found dharma in surprising places in your life, in your experience? Anybody start us off? Would you mind starting those around? And everybody can take one of those sheets. And if you'd also start by sharing your name so we can... know Hi, Annie. Um, Hold it right up to your mouth. Okay. Um, I
2: have found it in beading earrings, necklaces, whatever, with a friend um as we sit and put out five different classes of does it go with this particular piece of beating that we've put together and discuss about what really fits what makes it feel right um there, there is this feeling of uh, not just togetherness, but of, um, it's this freedom of doing what feels right, that feels settling, that feels um, the way I want to live
1: all the time. Mm, lovely. So being present, being present, you just there's there's a sense that comes from your work with the beads. Right. That, but with the friend, it, it, uh-huh. it, uh huh. Nice. It has to be that combination for me. Yeah. Nice. And I bet people that see your creation have that similar experience. They they have an experience of there there was some harmony here. There was some awareness here that brought these beads together in that kind of a form. Mm -hmm. Yeah, nice, thanks. Thanks, Annie. Anybody else? Dharma in interesting, surprising places.
0: Well, what you just said about that people who observe the creation then also have a sense of that harmony, which sort of brings me to, you know, the Dharma in surprising places, the notion of it, how, it, if and how it spreads, and though some people actually feel that, it, well, I guess it's relates to karma maybe too. But that whatever, you know, your actions sort of go out there into the ether, and uh, every every action has a reverberation, of, you know, of one sort or mm-hmm. another. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a little <coughs> witty about about. That with, whether I, and my experience of it is very unformed, and I don't know if I believe it or not. Mm. Uh, I'd like to. And as you're talking, I think of you know our dysfunctional Congress. So you know, is Dharma in surprising places? I guess in you know, I guess in the time it takes, you know, the the mountain to wear down, with this, whatever that that metaphor is about the. The scarf going over it or something, mm. you know. You know what I'm getting at, mm. but um, i I guess I'm thinking about what, how powerful these transmissions, if there are transmissions,
1: mm. are. Uh-huh. Well, thanks for sharing that. What was your name? Sophia. Sophia. Thanks, Sophia. Yeah, the. I, I think you're pointing right at one of the foundations of the teachings, which is that uh, what we do in our lives is the ground of our being. We're, everything we do, every thought we have, every action we take, we're creating a life. And, and then this has uh, consequences. So the, one of the teachings is about the five remembrances, and one of the five remembrances is that all that I do in my life is the ground of my being. I cannot avoid the consequences of all that I do. So I think that's the good news, and uh, the slightly less good news is that it takes a long time to have a large social change. I mentioned slavery. uh, The first time that anybody publicly spoke out that's recorded publicly against slavery was in about 1600 in England. And the Emancipation Proclamation that officially declared that we no longer were a slave country was, what, 1863 or something like that? So what is that? That's 200, and so that's about 263 years. That's a lot of generations that it took to move through that way of living, that what we now think of as being unskillful, unethical, not virtuous. So I think we have to be patient with <laughs> Congress. You know, we, we can ask for things the way we would like to have them, and just, it takes a long time. But nevertheless, in our own lives, as, just as you say, what we do is so important every thought, every action. Great. Thanks, Sophia. Let's have one other, and then we'll have some chanting. Somebody else share where they've noticed the Dharma and a surprising... Yeah, go for it. And your name is? Just yeah, it's on. I can hear it rattling. No, Timothy. Um, Timothy. In my, my marriage, which is kind of troubled at the moment, um, I've long been accused, and it's dead-on accurate. I have zero patience. I have less patience than anyone I've been on this planet, and I know it. Um, I kind of asked Jill about it a while back, and I didn't get it at first. I said, well, how do you get patience? And, um, the answer is, you wait.
2: Um, <laughs> and, of course, my comeback was, what's the shortcut?
1: that's great thanks Timothy (laughs) I can visualize you patiently waiting for patience Ah, come on (laughs) very good well one of the beautiful parts of our Theravadan tradition is chanting it allows us to touch into a part of our brains, not the usual left brain, get things done brain, but kind of the right brain, a little bit more comprehensive and overarching. And so I'd like to have us share a chant that if you go anywhere else in the world to a Buddhist gathering, almost no matter what the tradition, whether they're Theravadan or Mahayana or Zen or Korean or Chinese or whatever, people will chant a chant that's like this. And this chant is in the ancient Pali language, the language that is similar to what probably was spoken by the Buddha. The Pali language uh, is the language that was first used for recording what was transmitted from that time in what we call the poly Scriptures. Aha, uh-huh, here you go. So I'll start out, and each of these involves repetition three times. So maybe the first time through, you won't be familiar with it, but the second time through and the third time through, I encourage you to pick it up, and we'll do it in that way together. So the first is an homage to the blessed one, the worried, worthy one, the rightly self-awakened one. And really, we're not revering a person, but we're revering in us, as human beings, the ability to awaken. And then we talk in the chants of the three refuges going to the Buddha being the ability to awaken, the Dharma being the teachings that inform our lives, and the Sangha being the community of spiritual friends and associates that we work with, going to each of those three for refuge. So we'll do the chant, and then I'll ring the bell. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambhuddha Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambhuddha Namo tasa Bhagavato arahato Sama Sampudasa Buddham saranam gacchami Dhamam saranam gacchami Sangam saranam gacchami Dutiyampi. Buddham Saranam Gacchami Dutiyam Pi Dhammam Saranam Gacchami Dutiyam Pi Sangam Saranam Gacchami Tatiya'm Buddham Saranam Gacchami Tatiya'm Dhamam saranam gachami Tatiampi sangam saranam gachami